Good morning or afternoon. It's good to be with you wherever you are at. It's really just a joy to be able to worship together. Though uh, we're not really worshiping together, not at least physically worshiping together, uh, hopefully you are worshiping with someone. If not, certainly know that the Spirit is worshiping with you and, and knitting our hearts together as we uh, come uh, before the Lord in certain passages and through our worship service, our home worship guide, to worship Him. And He works in just a surprising way, but He does work. You know, this is a picture of what we have here in our text today, 2 Kings 5, uh, looking at Naaman's story. If you haven't been able to read it yet, you've scrolled past it, I think it'd be important to go back and read through its entirety. Because we're going to talk about it, uh, but we're not going to really read it. We'll reference some of the verses, but it'd be good to have an understanding of what God is saying. So I'll go ahead, give you a second to go back and read it now. Well, now that you've read it, you can see that God is working in his passage in some very surprising ways. God is working through Naaman, uh, this Syrian general, uh, to come and know him. It's amazing. It's complex. It has some broad implications, and it certainly is focused on the the glorification of God alone. You know, oftentimes you and I in our lives uh, tend to... uh, really narrow or, or, or in a sense, um, not give full uh, credit to how God's kingdom works. This could be because we have blind spots. This could be because uh, of our position as Westerners. This could be because of the stage in life that we find ourselves. But oftentimes, we are not really thinking through uh, the full implications of how God's kingdom works. It's stories like Naaman that reveal to us that God works in surprising ways. Uh, I think if you're anything like me, you tend to think that God works in sort of uh, cookie-cutter ways, that he saves people in certain ways and he reveals himself in certain ways. We know that it's not true, especially as you look at a text like 2 Kings 5 and Naaman. We realize that God works in some surprising ways. You know, God's always revealing to his people the surprising nature of his kingdom. God, through the story of Naaman, is doing this. God has been doing this all throughout his narrative in the Old Testament. And then also, as we work forward in the New Testament, we see very surprising ways in which God is revealing his kingdom. And this must cause us to trust boldly in the work of Jesus Christ. When we see the surprising nature of God's kingdom, it shouldn't shock us. It shouldn't get us to push back or to alienate or to, to hunker down and say, no, it's got to work this way. Instead, it moves us to trust boldly in the work of Jesus Christ because Jesus is the one who is working to, to bring people into a saving faith with Yahweh. The Spirit is the one reconciling you and I and others to God. So on the face of it, this story is quite simple. Uh, Naaman, uh, through a relationship with Elisha, comes to know Yahweh, has saving faith, and returns to Syria uh, with a piece of the land so he can worship. He's a part of the covenant people. Certainly how our Sunday school classes or children's story lessons present this story, that Naaman coming to know the Lord is simple. But there are so many surprises that we find by just digging just a little bit in this text. 
And so this morning we're going to do that and we're going to see that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, our risen and saving King, that that gospel has broad implications, has complex realities that we just have to live and figure out, and has a defined focus in everything that it does. So our first main point, that the kingdom of God and this gospel, it has broad implications. One of the first things that we see in our text is just this idea of who's in and who's out, who's a part of God's covenant people and who is not. And it's presented to us in a bit of a surprising manner. You have Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, a great man with his master, and he was in high favor because of him who had given him victory, which is the Lord. He was a mighty man of valor. But he was a leper. So while he had all these great things going for him, he was a leper. And remember, in the Bible, in the ways that the leprosy is talked about, it certainly was a disease. There were lots of leprous diseases and and skin diseases that would come that were roped into it. You can go back to Leviticus and it will outline what some of these were and, and how you handled them. But it's often used as a metaphor for sin. So what this is pointing out is that Naaman was this great and mighty man. Uh, By the world's standards and eyes, he was uh, the top of the top. He was the cream de la crop, if you will. Yet, he was a leper. He was a sinner. And then we have the next character that we meet. Through this... uh, story, quick story that the Syrians were off and doing raids. They captured a little girl and this little girl served Naaman's wife. So she was a slave. She was a servant. We don't know a whole lot about her except for a few things that she's from Israel. That's where she was captured from. Our text tells us and that she trusted in Yahweh. But she points Naaman's wife Who knows of his leprous condition, obviously, and she does too by serving her. She points Naaman's wife to Elisha and says, May my master go to this prophet, the prophet found in Samaria, because he will heal him of leprosy. She boldly trusts. This is a a little girl. Uh, The Hebrew uh, really builds it as just she has a young childlike person. She is in. You see, our first lesson is God's flipping the script on on what the standards are for how we view people who are in and out. You've got Naaman who by the world in an outward look certainly would have been viewed as someone who was in. He was in the, the top of the top. He had power. He had wealth. He had uh, great victories. He was a man of valor. He was well esteemed. Then you have this Servant girl, low, one of the lowest social statuses. It's just not much about her that we know. But she's in. She trusts Yahweh. She's the catalyst for Naaman's saving faith. This little girl. God's often challenging us in who we view and how we view them, whether they're in or they're out. And he's flipping the script in this upside down way. Not only of how we view people, challenging us not to view a book by its cover, to use that phraseology, but also how do we listen to those sorts of people? You know, Naaman actually has a great rapport with these people. 
he listens to this servant, his wife's servant, but also his servants later as they convince him to actually do what Elisha had told him to do after he throws his temper tantrum. He has some humility about him, which we'll get to a bit later. So not only do we see that the broad implications sort of challenge who is in and, and who is out, but it challenges how we think about how God works. In this passage, there's a there's a, a bit of a traditional sort of way of thinking. And in these cultures, it would have been that you go to the top to get things done. It's a lot how we think, right? We think that if you go to the top, you get things done. Let me email the CEO. Let me talk to your boss. Let me go to these or that different places so I can get something done. Because I know that that's how things get done. <laughs> that's what Naaman does. Naaman hears from the servant girl, but then he goes to his king. He goes to the king and says, hey, here is what the servant girl said. And the king says, sure, go. Here's a letter. I'll even send you a letter to the Israelites king because this would be kind of weird. Uh, our enemy showing up in Israel to be healed. And so he gets this letter and he sends it to uh, the Israelite king, which is uh, Jehoram. And Jehoram gets this letter and he reads it and, and he thinks, who am I? Who am I, God, that I could heal this man, that I could give life or take, take away and, and give death? You see, they have three powerful people. And at the end of that uh, bit of our story, Naaman is still leprous. See, the men in power, those, those men could not solve Naaman's sin problem. They could not solve the sin that he had had in his body. Only God could do that. At least Jehoram, the king of Israel, pointed out to that fact. Am I God? Well, no, you're not God. To kill and to make alive. Jehoram knew he could not heal Naaman. You see, God's flipping the script in how we think about power. You can think about how uh, power and, and these sorts of things work, how God works. Uh, you think about Elisha. Uh, he wanted, or Naaman wanted Elisha to wave his hands to heal him, some miraculous, prophetical way. Also, if you think about Naaman dipping in the Jordan, there's no explanation for what that is. So God is challenging, he's broadening for us the implications of how he works. It's not always in the ways that you and I think. It's not always in the way that our world has set up. And it's not always in the way that we would expect. It's broader. You know, when I drive, I, I use my mirrors a lot. Hopefully when you drive, you do the same thing. If not, you've probably been in a lot of accidents. I would just recommend you use your mirrors. I've been in some accidents, even when I use my ears, because we have to remember that our mirrors don't give us a full picture. I can look in my rear view mirror, but it's showing me only what's directly behind me. I can look at my driver's side and my passenger side mirrors, but they're just showing me what's on the side right there, right next to my car. And often comes with those little warning symbols that objects may appear closer than they really are, or objects may be closer than they really appear. And so you have to be careful. That's why we look over our shoulders to get a better idea of what's going on around us because there's something broader happening. There's something more going on than what our mirrors can reveal to us. And friends, that's what it's like when we think about how God works in his kingdom. It's broader than what you and I just see. We have such limited perspectives on how God is working in his kingdom. We don't see the ways he's working overseas through foreign missionaries bringing his gospel to people who have literally never heard about Jesus Christ. We don't see how God is working through our neighbors 
after we've had uh, very difficult conversations with them about gospel truth. You see, when we boldly trust in the work of Jesus Christ, God's surprising kingdom is going to come and enter into these different places. And we delight in that truth. We delight that God's kingdom work is broader than what we can expect, is broader than what we can see. You know, God works through crazy ways. Uh, Paul in Romans 9 uh, quotes Hosea, who at the time is talking about how uh, God's people are not going to be in the ones that we would assume to be in and the ones that are going to be in or the ones we wouldn't assume to be in. What he's pointing to, what he's pointing out is that we should delight in the fact that God is bringing people into his kingdom, into his covenant promises that you and I, that the Israelites would not expect it would not be able to picture into that family. Think about Saul's conversion into Paul, God revealing himself through Jesus in a, in a vision on Damascus Road. It wasn't always how God worked, but we should delight in the fact that God does work in these surprising ways. Because ultimately, it's always to bring the gospel, the good news of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, into people's lives, to invite them into this narrative. And the surprising nature of God's kingdom is that he's going to work in ways and through people that you and I just wouldn't expect. But it's not only that that we see in our text that the gospel has broad implications, but the gospel has some complex realities. And on the face of it, like we said earlier, this text seems rather simple. Naaman comes to know the Lord through Elisha. He's healed from his leprosy in the Jordan. But look, there's so much complexity to just that simple explanation. Remember, Naaman is an enemy of Israel and he's defeating Israel. So the fact that he can even enter into the land and that have some favorable response from Elisha and the servants and that he would be healed by Yahweh, it's pretty complex. Even how he's healed is complex. It's not that it simply just came and was healed. There's this whole narrative of him appearing before Elisha and Elisha not showing up and sending him and him throwing a temper tantrum and his servants. It just goes on and on. See, there's complex realities that the gospel reveals to us. One of the first things that we see in this is, we've mentioned it already, is that the gospel challenges uh, how we think about power, what our concept of power looks like. There are three powerful figures, and we pointed out that nothing happens when all of uh, when Naaman is getting his leprosy worked out through these three. But yet it's the servant girl and it's the servants of, of Naaman that really press Naaman forward into being healed of his leprosy and his sin. And God is flipping upside down for us the way that we think about power structures through the story of Naaman. He is showing us that instead of coming in high, instead of coming in from the top with power and prowess and esteem, that it takes being low, that it takes being low to be healed. It takes being like an infant born as God. What a picture of of what we're talking about. God entered into the scene through Jesus Christ Born as an infant. This is not what Israel was expecting. When Israel was thinking about the coming Messiah, they were expecting a a powerful king to come. Someone that was going to flip Roman rule. That was going to start a revolution with sword and, and men like Naaman of mighty valor. But instead, Jesus comes in the form of an infant. And later in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
right when the disciples think, okay, this is when the kingdom's going to start. You know, Jesus is uh, approached by the guard and there's this moment where the disciples are probably thinking, this is it, this is it, this is it. Jesus is going to tell us to bring out our swords and to start the revolution right here. And we're going to take down these power structures. One of the disciples gets out a sword and he slashes and cuts off the ear of a guard. And what does Jesus do? Does Jesus pull out a sword and go with him? Does he jump on his horse? No, instead he touches the guard's ear and he heals him. And then he goes quietly with them to be tried proven guilty though innocent to be hung on a cross to die in the place where you and I should have see Jesus is flipping upside down the way we think about power that's what God's revealing for us through this text this morning as well but it's not only that this upside down nature the gospel challenging of our challenging us of our concept of power and how it works But it's also through allegiances. There's a complex reality to the way that we bind ourselves to people. So allegiance is just a fancy word for saying uh, our our trusting loyalty, our ability to believe and follow someone. A lot of times in the New Testament, the Greek word that's used for faith, pistis, and the family of words that it's found, uh, meaning faith or faithful, really has this this um, uh, thrust behind it of this trusting allegiance, or this trusting loyalty, just giving ourselves fully to someone or something. And the complex reality that we realize in this text is that uh, through faith, Naaman responds in trust in Yahweh. His allegiance changes literally, I would say overnight, but it probably happened during the day. It happened during the day. It happened instantaneously. He goes down to the Jordan after his ruffling and kind of fighting and pushing against it. He can't believe that Elisha won't even come with him or come out and send his messenger. And his servants convince him to go and dip in the Jordan seven times. And so he goes and he does that. And here's what we hear. We'll we'll read the end of that passage in the beginning of the next, starting in verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. Wow, that's great. The Hebrew there really actually kind of is, um, uh, it kind of matches the Hebrew that we have for the little girl. He becomes a lot like the one who sent him on this journey. He's restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God. He and all his company. What a great, what, what an amazing witness. All this happening in front of all these Syrians. And he came and he stood before him. So turning and standing, it's a big theme in this text. You know, before Naaman stood before his king uh, to ask to go to Samaria, now he stands before the man of God and listen to what he says. Behold, I know that there is no God, not another God, not a better God, not a more convenient God, not a more powerful God, not a different God. But he knows that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. What a statement. I mean, it's tear worthy. Here's a man worshiping another God in the temple of Rimon. Comes to know God by being cleansed of his leprosy. He was seeking physical healing. But what the man of God sent him to do and what Yahweh did 
He healed him completely. Yes, he got his physical healing, but more than that, he was healed spiritually. He was brought into a relationship with the living God. And ultimately and immediately, his allegiance, his trusting loyalty changed. It changed to that of Yahweh. We see that in a couple of different ways. We, we see that because he repents. There's this turning that we just mentioned. He, he turned and returned to God, the one who had created him, the one with whose image he was made in. In Jeremiah 3, there's this language when Israel has walked away that God is speaking through Jeremiah saying, I want Israel to return to me. I want them to come back to me. I am the one that will fill them up. I am the the bread of life for them. I am the one who will will cause them to flourish and to to be made whole. It's exactly what we see in Naaman. His turning from other allegiances and putting his primary allegiance in Yahweh. But then secondly, we see that he has true humility. I mean, as we were to go on through that text, you'll remember he actually calls himself the servant. He calls himself a servant to Elisha and to Yahweh saying, look, I'm a servant now. I was a commander, but I'm a servant now. His language changes, his position changes. Yes, great humility. Now he did have aspects of humility before listening to the servant girl. But it's amazing. Now he places himself in her position. He places himself in a position of lowness by being a servant. And then we also see that he has this request for forgiveness. So remember, he's a commander. He's a general of an army. He's great at planning and looking ahead. So he looks ahead and he sees a problem. My role, my vocation, my calling as a commander of the Syrian army, I've got to go back. I've got to fulfill this. Because now look what I'm bringing back with me. I'm bringing back a relationship with Yahweh. I'm also going to bring back this dirt so I can offer sacrifices to Yahweh. So I can fully trust and live out a life with him. But there is this really complex thing. I'm a commander of an enemy army. And I actually have to go into this temple of Rimon and and offer sacrifices. Or at least have to be there when my king is offering sacrifices. He's going to expect that of me. Sort of, instead of shirking those responsibilities, instead of missing an opportunity to shine a light in a dark place, Naaman instead asks God this bold request for forgiveness so that he can work out the complexities of what it means to follow Yahweh and still keep his vocation. I love this quote. The request is a bold assertion of trust in Yahweh's gracious forgiveness. And while Elisha did not give explicit consent, it must be implied in his command that Naaman go in peace. No judgment is leveled against the foreigner, and he is free to set the worship of Yahweh into the complex demands of his existing allegiances, even though they are tied to foreign worship practices. God can redeem and work through those things. It can shame false worship to shine a light in a dark place, as the author goes on to quote later. And so what does this mean for you and I? Well, so much of our life is like Naaman's. It's complex. Following Jesus is a complex reality that you and I have to deal with on a daily basis. I mean, the pandemic has made things more complex. 
it has pitted people against one another. That certainly is true. But before the pandemic, life was complex as well. I think what it's done is it's just raised and put in front of us this reality that following Jesus is so complex. It's not as simple as just saying, I follow Jesus and, and walking our lives. And we have to really think about and press into what that looks like. And there's a duty that comes with the way in which we live out our following of Jesus in these complex realities. And just think about Naaman as an example. In his vocation, he had some complex things he had to work through. Like, likely that's true for us. Work has gotten so much more complex in the past few months for everybody. But as Christians, it's even more complex. What does it look like to be a person of faith in my workplace? It may not be acceptable. It's probably not socially acceptable. So how, how does our trusting boldly in Jesus impact the way you and I work? The way we press into difficult job situations. Maybe you have difficult employees that we work with or, or different uh, colleagues that are just tough to work with. Perhaps we've lost a job. We're looking for jobs. All those different ways in which work has come to the forefront recently. When we trust boldly in Jesus, it gives us what we need to press into those realities, to be like Naaman and to say, I need to work this out. I got to figure out what it means. Sometimes maybe it's asking God for forgiveness in the ways that we've wronged him or others. Perhaps it's figuring out the way in which the gospel enters into and influences the way that we do our work. So we trust boldly in the work of Jesus Christ, our risen King, for we know that no matter if it's through work or through relationships, through finances, identity struggles, the way we view and articulate our, our political stances, the way we use social media, we're equipped to do that work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit and the work uh, that Jesus has done for us. We're able to glorify God and, and to give charity, to love freely, to give mercy and understanding to those around us and to engage in life's complexities. And so we do that. We know that we're seeing that the gospel has broad implications as complex realities, but also our third and final point, that it has a defined focus. That through this story, we, we see that, that Naaman wants to give glory to God. And Elisha does want the same thing. See, God deserves the glory alone. That is the simple truth that we see here in this passage. That all throughout this story, God is given the glory. In him alone, when Naaman tries to offer Elisha uh, a reward, a present, a gift for the work that was done, Elisha takes a step back and says, No, as I stand before the God, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. This may highlight the fact of why Elisha sent his servant out to meet Naaman when Naaman came. So that when this healing came, when his flesh was healed, and when he came into a spiritual, living, loving relationship with the Lord, he couldn't look to Elisha and say, well, it was what Elisha did. But instead, he would worship Yahweh truly and only. And that Yahweh would be glorified for this. And then we have this idea, what does it look like to glorify God? How do you and I do that? How do we live that out in our real lives here today? 
well, I, I really love this um, resource, a new city catechism. It, it's um, it's a modern catechism written in, in modern language, and it's aimed at adults. And it really, it's it's it exists to sort of help us enter back into this this great practice of catechesis and learning about God through uh, doctrinal statements that are tied straight to the Bible. So in this New City Catechism, they have this question, how do we glorify God? I think it's a great question. How do we glorify God? And here's the answer. We glorify God by enjoying Him, loving Him, trusting Him, and by obeying His will, commands, and laws. See, glorifying God means that we enjoy him. We enjoy the the truth that God has entered into a relationship with us, that he's pulled back the curtain, that he's offered Jesus, that we can have a relationship with him by loving him, loving that truth and loving his word, by pressing into his Bible, knowing it in a way that allows us to, to navigate this world and to understand what God desires for us. By trusting him, by trusting that what he is doing through our lives and other people's lives, trusting his word to be true so that we can obey his wills, commands, and laws, which that's where we find those things. See, that brings God glory. See, just like Naaman and Elisha, our lives should be characterized by giving God glory alone. And so... The picture in which this vehicle, this happens, the vehicle for which God has brought glory is through this beautiful picture of reconciliation. You have Naaman reconciled to God. Certainly that is what this is about. That reconciliation with God happens through Naaman. But also that reconciliation happens from person to person. You see, Naaman is reconciled to Elisha. They were enemies. You had a commander of the army of Syria, and you had a prophet of Yahweh, of Israel. Yet at the end of their time together, Elisha sends him and says, go in peace. This is such a familial term for the people of God. It's remarkable, one author says, that the prophet could could dismiss an enemy in peace. There had to be a great joy in both Elisha's and Naaman's hearts as they realized that the Lord had brought reconciliation between them. They stood as friends before the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that that is a picture of you and I. That is a picture of what God has done for you and I before him. That we've been reconciled to him through the work of Jesus Romans 5 is one of my favorite places to go. It just outlines this truth for us so well. Romans 5 verses 8 through 11. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, like Naaman, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ entered the Jordan and came out on the other side for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, friends, that's the picture that's presented for you and I. The invitation into the story is that through reconciliation with God, We can understand this gospel. 
we can trust boldly in who Jesus Christ is. Because in our reconciliation with God, reconciliation with man has to happen. Reconciliation with God, as one author puts it, will always mean reconciliation with one another. And true reconciliation with one another cannot exist apart from reconciliation with God. Brothers and sisters, as we think about this text, we have great joy like Naaman to go into our complex lives and to think about the broad implications the gospel has. We bring God glory. We do that alone. We trust in the gospel boldly of what Christ has done. It allows us to enter into those complex things through our work. It allows us to think about who God's including and how he works. And it helps us to be about the ministry of reconciliation. And our world needs that ministry more than ever right now. That world needs to see the love that we have that's poured into us from our Savior Jesus, poured out to others, bringing about reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, I, I hope that we can see that through God revealing his surprising kingdom to us, surprising nature of how it works, who's included, and what it's intended for to bring God glory, that we can trust boldly in Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King, and our High Priest. That's our prayer, and that's our hope. Amen.